Hello and welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with your hosts Hattie Butterworth and me Rebecca Toll. Within our vibrant musical world it can often feel that the struggles and humanity of the musicians is lost and restricted. Having both dealt in silence with mental, physical and emotional issues, we are now looking for a way to voice musicians' stories, discuss them further and to connect with the many others who suffer like we have. The personal issues we may face with our mental health, performance injury, work pressure and finances can be overlooked as the airbrush persona of musicians is sadly maintained. So join me, Hattie and guests as we attempt to bring an end to stigma by uncovering the things musicians don't talk about. Melissa, thank you so much for agreeing to come and talk today. It's lovely to be speaking with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. No, you're so, so welcome. And it's basically just a big day off for you from interviewing. And <laughs> you're now in the in the limelight. How do you feel mm-hmm. about that? Uh, fine. I have to remember not to ask the questions. <laughs> it always feels a bit weird to be on the other side of things. But yeah, yeah no, all good. Well, that's so, so interesting because like, 
I always get that actually in therapy where like I want to ask my therapist questions mm-hmm. it's not the same obviously but it's a little bit like that when you're like now you or although wait but this is you know I think one thing about I don't know about you but like one thing about being a podcaster like you don't always get the opportunity to feel like you can totally like share your story with someone else I don't know because you're always facilitating them it's kind of like so that's kind of why I wanted to invite you as well because I was thinking gosh you do so done so many interviews with so many people it's like actually you your story must be fascinating as well and like there should be a space for you to share that you know what I mean yeah so (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) so with that in mind would you start off by introducing yourself um you know who you are your musical background you know if someone doesn't know who you are from your podcast if you could just yeah give us an introduction sure well hi everyone I'm Melissa Brown um I'm a trombonist and various other low brass doubly person uh I'm based in the Midlands of the UK I spend most of my time teaching in various capacities um I'm the host and producer and uh one woman show behind Boulder's Brass podcast um and I'm also uh, an OCD manager rather than sufferer <laughs> yeah that's a really good way of explaining it I've never heard that well, I sort of feel like I made it through the part where I would have described myself as a sufferer. So now yeah. it's it's all about sort of keeping it all under control, I guess. Yeah. So go back to like your your childhood, mm-hmm. making this further into a therapy session. <laughs> no, but go back to your childhood. What was your musical beginnings? How did that all happen? Uh, yeah. So I've I've always been pretty much primarily a brass player. Um, so. I, I did as all good British school children should do and played the recorder when I was in year three. Um, and then I think pretty promptly my school realised that it was a horrible instrument to play. Um, and so a lot of us were <laughs> encouraged into into other things. Um, and my, my dad is a, an amateur brass player. He now plays the tuba, but he had sort of worked his way around the brass band. And from a young age, I was fascinated by the big, shiny, noisy things. Um, I think that's probably pretty in line with my personality, <laughs> I would guess. Um, so, yeah, I, as young as sort of six or seven, I was asking, you know, where does dad go on a Tuesday evening with the with the big, shiny thing? And I was fascinated. I wanted to know all about band. I wanted to know all about brass instruments. Um, and so I was able to, to go along to my local brass band, Chatteris Town Band, out in the middle of the Fens in Cambridgeshire, um, when I was nine years old um and at the time uh, I like to sort of shoehorn this into every conversation I possibly can at the time we were told that we couldn't start any earlier than about the age of nine because you needed your two top front adult teeth to have grown through Mm -hmm. um as a teacher I think it's absolute bs um I will take kids on a lot younger than that they're very adaptable you don't need that so anyway I wasn't able to start until I was nine because of this rule uh, for whatever reason Uh, yeah yeah all about teeth um so I started off as a cornet player and I didn't really like it very much. I wasn't very good at it. Um, The mouthpiece was far too small for me. So I sort of worked my way around the brass band until I got to one that made sense. So I was sort of stuck in the middle on the tenor horn, which is like like a very, very small tuba for anyone that's not so au fait with the brass band setup. Um, Like a very, very small tuba. And um, 
the the president of our brass band brass bands are very strange they have presidents and i still don't know what his job is but i'm grateful that he exists because he is the principal trombone of the royal opera house orchestra and he came and did a concert when i was about 12 um and he played he played solos with the band and i was like oh right we've got it the big old slidey fart horn that's the one I want that's the one for me so I'd been playing for about four years before I sort of settled on the trombone um and that was pretty much it I did a lot of amateur playing um in my county um I lived sort of too far away from Cambridge for any of the actual county ensembles we had a local youth brass band um school ensembles local amateur orchestra um nothing on this sort of junior college or national this that or the other scale all local amateur stuff and then at 18 I, I took up a place at Trinity Lab and Conservatoire of Music and Dance rolls right off the tongue mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow so you were there for undergrad just undergrad or did you just do undergrad yeah no I, I I just did my my bachelor's um I did audition a, a couple of places for for masters but that sort of comes in with what we're going to talk about later um it definitely uh, my mental health had an impact on my ability to secure a master's place because it wasn't that I wasn't playing at the right sort of level it was that I was struggling to to practice and things so actually I didn't get in for my master's when I wanted to and then I decided that I was working enough that it wasn't worth me re-auditioning a year later Mm, my goodness thank you so much for sharing that though because I think that's the reality for so many people Mm-hmm. you know and I didn't even I was in the same space you know I haven't done a master's but I felt like when the auditions were there my mental health wasn't at a place where I could even contemplate the idea of wanting to do a master's you know I, mm-hmm. I just couldn't face it face mm-hmm. the idea of auditioning face the idea of of two more years of study after the kind of what had happened before so thank you for saying that and like being honest about it going wrong mm-hmm because I think that's probably part of our life that like a lot of people wouldn't even want to mention, you know, oh, you could probably easily say like, oh, I didn't go for masters. Haha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that would be so easy to say, but thank you so much for being honest. Cause I think that's the case with so many people. Um, yeah. So you're going on to, you know, the big bad wolf of mental health and mm-hmm. OCD when, you know, I don't know how to, which way around to say this. I mean, I was going to ask, what is what is your problem or, <laughs> or when did you first realize you had a problem but maybe you could answer both in the same question you know what what is it you've suffered with when did you first start suffering with it sure I love the question what is your problem I wish more people put it like that it's it's there's something beautiful in being so blunt about it as well it's yeah. like, oh, well, I know how to answer that question actually no beating around the bush I know exactly how to answer that one um so the there's sort of a difference between when I noticed that maybe OCD was quite present in my life and when it became a problem, those two things are quite separate for me. So it wasn't until um, I started to talk about it more that I started to think, oh, actually, I had these funny little habits when I was younger that I wouldn't have thought anything of at the time, but now uh, so clearly early manifestations of OCD as young as sort of seven eight nine I remember doing just like funny little things you know that now we would call them the compulsions um I didn't necessarily have the obsessions being super clear but the compulsions were there so I would do funny little things 
And so I remember that, but it wasn't really a, a, an issue then. Um, so for, for sort of people that maybe don't know, I purposely left an article behind the window that we're talking on so that I can read out a definition of OCD if that's not too uh, completely mm, yeah, able of do it. But just because I think it's... It, it's summed up in a really interesting way that I think people are really happy to overlook. So this is from the Mind website, and so there's loads and loads of information if people want to find out any more. But what they describe obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD as is that it has these two clear main parts, the obsessions and the compulsions. The obsessions are unwelcome thoughts, images, urges, worries, doubts that repeatedly occur in your mind. They can make you feel anxious or uncomfortable. And so in order to quieten or appease said thoughts and obsessions. So the obsessions are different to how people typically use the word obsession as well. Mm. It's, it, you know, we often talk about obsessions as a good thing mm -hmm. and it's not such a good thing. And so the compulsions are sort of repetitive activities that you do to, to quieten or appease those thoughts. Um, so they've summed it up as an example here. It could be something like checking a door or repeating a specific phrase or checking how your body feels. Um, and there are loads of different ways in which both the obsessions and the compulsions can manifest. So I started to notice that it was becoming more of an issue for me once I started at college. So when I was in my sort of early years, first, second and third year, I was aware of it um, and I think it was just the sort of unusual situation of being away from home, living with strangers, being in a completely new educational environment, sort of being in charge of your own life for the first time. It's all of that sort of stuff to do with uni of any persuasion is, you know, it's all new and quite unsettling and weird. Um, but it wasn't until I got to my fourth year that I started to, to find it more of an issue. So as I'm sure anybody listening that's done any sort of degree, your last year is stressful. There's a lot of expectations on you. You've got to tie up any loose ends and then essentially be prepared as a professional musician to go out in the world. If, as we've mentioned, you're not going on to, to undertake further study. And so just the added pressure of all the things that you have to try to include in fourth year uh, were becoming quite an issue. Um, I wasn't dealing very well with the stress. I wasn't, I don't want to say I wasn't managing my time well, because that's actually not fair. I was trying to do too much in the time that I had. So I wasn't looking after myself very well, I suppose is a better way to put it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was struggling with ever feeling relaxed. I wasn't finding practicing very easy sort of any time spent on my own was very difficult um and that that sort of comes a little bit later as well outside of college um and I will be forever grateful to my mother who literally was a 24 7 helpline and I know she's going to be listening to this and either rolling her eyes or feeling a bit sad that I've mentioned this but you know I was calling her up I'd get into the practice room at 8 a.m and I was calling her the second I got in and I was like I just don't think I can do it mm -hmm. I can't concentrate I don't I don't know what I've got on today I knew full well what I had on today but it was just everything felt a panic yeah. a scramble just very unclear and just every day was difficult actually all I was really looking forward to at the end of the day was going to sleep because that was the only time that I did didn't feel myself worrying um and this all sounds very extreme and I suppose at the time it probably was quite extreme um you know nowadays I'm sort of the other side of that tunnel which is why like we say I'm able to sort of speak about it a little bit more um but 
the the sort of biggest takeaway from this conversation that I hope lots of people can can maybe take on board is that the OCD is a real debilitating mm-hmm. and upsetting condition. Um, and the thing that I bang on about all the time is it's not a joke. It's not the butt of a joke. It's not the subject for comedic material. Um, the mainstream media portrays it incorrectly constantly and so the only thing that people ever think of when they think of OCD is that it's a bit of a joke and really that was in itself quite damaging to me because I felt just so embarrassed by it you know we we didn't really find a label for it necessarily um, until I was 21 and when I did realized that the the symptoms the diagnoses I was reading online aligned perfectly with what I was feeling I was embarrassed I didn't mm-hmm. want anybody to know I didn't want to tell anybody I didn't want to ask for help because that felt like admitting that this joke of a condition belonged to me mm-hmm. it just everything to do with that I was just not up for I didn't want to have anything to do with it yeah yeah so if you're comfortable um talking about your actual obsessions I don't know if that's something you could explain or what the sort of themes are for you your main themes or it varies um Mm -hmm. so I'm I'm a bit cautious to sort of go into it in any depth because the 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 biggest thing that you you learn in therapy with with OCD or, or for me anyway was deciphering what came from your rational or mm. from your irrational brain so we yeah. talk a lot about the, the OCD side some people characterize it as sort of like a demon or a creature or you know I I stick with the rational irrational brain um and so I'm I'm quite aware that if if I talk too much about what my irrational brain thinks my rational brain thinks what the bloody hell are you on about because when you say the things out loud they sound absolutely ridiculous yeah my you know one of the things my therapist said to me and this this sounds terribly big-headed but he said you know a lot of the people that are affected by OCD are actually very intelligent people so you know that what you're thinking and feeling absolutely isn't real it's Mm -hmm. probably not ever really going to manifest itself but it feels real and your mm-hmm. body's response is to panic. So I'm I'm just, this is a very roundabout way of saying, I'll sort of explain sort of generally um, how these things can, can pop in, but um, probably speaking about sort of specific things, one could end up being sort of sadly a little triggering. Um, but secondly, I know that when you say them out loud, it sounds ridiculous. And so I don't really want people to necessarily go down the route of thinking oh yeah, OCD really is as ridiculous as she's saying it is. Um, so Interesting, yeah. It's, yeah, there's just, uh, there's a few ways of like, I don't know, describing how the thoughts come, but um, they can range from things that are completely normal, day-to-day things that you're doing to, you know, completely wild out of left field, like what if I jumped in front of this train? Mm-hmm. Like, well, you, you, you're probably not going to do that probably not going to do that but in the brain of somebody with OCD they can get stuck on that thought and worry about well what if I do that Mm. what if I decided to follow through on that what if and it goes and goes you know you just kind of get stuck on these things that a neurotypical person would just like let pass through they don't get stuck on them at all and 
they can be like i say as ordinary as as that you know you're just you're on your way to college and you're on the way to work and you're going to get the train and that's a thought that passes by for an ocd person you can get really stuck on that Mm. um and so your rational brain is like well if you do that you'll get squished that's a terrible thought your irrational brain is like yeah but what if what if what if what if what if what if and it turns it over and turns it around and the compulsions that come with that again can be anything and all of these sorry this is not a very eloquent way of explaining this at all um those thoughts as well when you get a hold of them as in you've you've sort of managed it you've managed to quieten it you're like right i'm done with that particular thought yeah it will find a way to kind of um Mm -hmm. what's the what's the greek uh mythological creature you cut off its head and it grows back that guy that's how i envisage ocd so you cut off one head and you're like right i'm done with that problem and then it's like haha bitch no and grows back again in a slightly different guise um and one that you can't find online and one that no one's struggled with before to your mind yeah yeah so if i stick with like the train analogy you'll be like right i've managed to get that out of my head fine and then you know it'll come back in another way that's like okay you might not jump in front of a train but what if there's a mad murderer on this train and it's like flipping heck right i've just managed to get one thought out of my head and you've come back in another how have you done that it's like some sort of little disguise so it does um it's all it knows exactly what to get at yeah and it doesn't matter it can feel like it doesn't matter how much you get over one of them it'll always find because I found at least when I'd got rid of the shame around some of the thoughts, or I knew, for example, like that I struggled a lot with suicide OCD, like you're explaining, you know, thoughts of that kind of nature of, of you know, going in front of trains or whatever. And once I realised how many people had those thoughts, I found those thoughts went away and my thoughts morphed into like what sound like kind of paranoia thoughts mm-hmm. that weren't paranoia but I wasn't sure if they were or not. So I thought I was yeah. going nuts. So you know what I mean? Like, but then that wasn't really spoken about. So then I thought, gosh, this must be true. And, you know, I exactly, I completely understand what you're saying though about it morphing and about, it's really, really, yeah, it's a really tricky one because it can sh- like shapeshift so easily. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I just, I think I'm, I think I'm really humbled actually by your um, hesitation, actually, to share the ins and outs of your brain, because you don't actually need to, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a big part of OCD recovery is the thoughts themselves aren't necessarily the problem, like the actual content, sorry, of the thoughts aren't the problem. Yeah. It's, you know, how you're dealing with them, how you're accepting them, how you're working with them and managing them. I think that's a really good point, because I can, I think... I can be very honest and open about my intrusive thoughts, blah, blah, blah. But actually, if you feel like you can't speak about the absolute content of them with anybody other than a therapist, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. You know, is that what you feel like? Yeah. So the the only the only time I really talk about the content of my thoughts is if I'm having a particularly bad day. One of those days where I'm like, really, I do know how to control this. And mm. control is a bad word, actually. Control is a word I shouldn't use because 
anyway yeah okay is about <laughs> it doesn't like letting that. go of control yeah. <laughs> um and not micromanaging everything but the, if i'm having a day where i'm struggling to manage um my partner is incredibly supportive um i met him in 2016 which is and i'll explain a little bit more about my therapy journey in a bit but it's before i had my what i call my good bout of therapy so i had a bad one and then i had a good bout of therapy and when i met him <laughs> i know i know it's such such a long road but when i met him i was yeah i was very um reluctant really to try to explain my condition because i thought god this is going to make him run a mile mm. he's a scientist though so i think there was something about him that was like oh okay actually no i can I like to learn. I like to understand. So actually, I think we were a fairly good match on on that scale. But when I did go through my good therapy, he came with me to my first session. And then my therapist said, it's going to be beneficial if he doesn't come with you again. I was just very nervous. I just thought, mm, if you don't come, I'm not going in that room. Um, and so what he did do, though, was do all my quote unquote homework with me. He read my files of with my consent, obviously, he wasn't just like, oh, I want to know. Um, but I said to him, you know, actually, it will be helpful if you look through the work that I'm doing and kind of understand my coping mechanisms and my techniques so that if I am struggling, maybe you can help me, you know, not uh, in a sort of, um, not in a crutch type of way. But when I'm having a bad day, he's the person that basically I go to and I say, hey, I need to tell you this stupid thought that I'm having because I just need to get it out of mm -hmm. my brain and out of my body. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't happen very often anymore. Um, but sometimes I just need to hear it. I need to hear how yeah. silly it sounds and how irrational it is to, to then be able to go, yeah, okay, that actually that helped. That's all I needed mm -hmm. was to say it out loud to somebody else that wasn't going to go, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> Yeah. And, and just sort of hear it and then it's 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 gone and passed and that's about the only time that i think about it because the biggest part of our therapy about about ocd is learning to manage those thoughts mm -hmm. so by sort of talking about them out loud it makes them feel a bit more real which they're not we're trying to mm -hmm. to understand that they're not real and let them pass so i try not to sort of make them too much of a reality so that i can just go yep okay that's a that's a dumb thought off you go where's the one that i actually need to be able to get on with my day that it's type also, of a thing i'm learning so much <laughs> you know there's so much i didn't consider i think as well because there's so much doubt in ocd that it might not be ocd i don't know if that's something you deal with ever yep. but i think that you know especially when the thoughts are changing all the time or obsessions are moving and stuff you kind of think, well, that one might have been OCD, but this one, you know, I is definitely not. And this one could be, I could be the one person who has this intrusive thought and acts on it, or I could be the one person that, you know, this is true for. And I think mm -hmm. when you don't necessarily share the thoughts all the time, then you're back, then you know it's always, I don't know how to put this. Then, no, it's a really bad way of putting it. <laughs> I was trying to it's say, so like, to find the right words, though. <laughs> you know that it's OC, OCD. Like, it's more clear that you're treating the condition rather than each individual thought. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? You're not putting, yeah. like, importance on each individual thought. It's like, they're mm -hmm. all under the same umbrella, something I struggle with, that I'm treating. Mm -hmm. And it makes it less kind of about seeking reassurance for every thought being definitely OCD and... Because that's something I definitely probably done a lot. <laughs> yeah. 
And sometimes I filter mine into useful or not useful rather than OCD or not OCD mm. now. It's like, okay, is this something that I need in order to further my day? Is this something I need to do to, I don't know, be a better teacher, be a better partner? No? Okay, it can probably go away for a minute. If it's important and I need to think about it later, it'll come back. If it's just a passing intrusion, it probably isn't worth attaching that importance mm. to. And it and and unless unless I attach that importance to it, it's probably not gonna come back. Yeah. It's about just sort of going, okay, that's not one I need for today and letting it go. But you know, I'm talking about this like right now in in such like, oh, it's this simple. I mean no, yeah, yeah. I turned thirty next week and I started noticing this at eighteen. You know, it's not totally. been it's not been that simple. It's taken a long time and it's only been in the last year and a half that I've started speaking about it. So, mm. you know, I do want to just be clear on the record that like it has been a long journey. It yeah. has taken some time and it is something that is managed, not cured. Yeah. And I, I mean, I do want to hear a lot more about your therapy journey, but mm-hmm. actually I'd quite like to go back to college mm-hmm. for you because I don't know, maybe it's because I relate so hard or whatever, but that situation you describe of entering into a practice room and calling your mom, mm-hmm. like that is a situation I completely understand, this feeling of everything falling apart around you. Mm-hmm. And your whole existence being fear, terror, anxiety, physical, emotional, mm-hmm. mental, the whole package just being this pit. And you're walking around college and you're talking to people, but half the time you don't feel like you're really there. Nobody, mm-hmm. you can't explain to anyone how horrendous it feels. You know, you can't, you can't get that across. Because first of all, it's not socially acceptable to and second of all they won't understand it's so so bad so how can you talk more about like how you managed it at college or did you not really manage it at college or I did not manage well at all um I think it's important for me to be really honest about this um so as I say it kicked off the worst in my fourth year my final recital was in the May of 2013 in the March at the Easter break of 2013, I went home to Cambridgeshire mm-hmm. and I said to my mum, I'm not going back. I'm just not going to finish. I had two months left and I was like, I, I just can't do it. I can't be in a practice room on my own. I'm not practicing properly. I need company the whole time to feel like I'm Same. not completely going crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, to feel safe as well. I just, nothing felt okay. Um, and, and you know I did go back and I did did my final recital um and uh, I don't know if if some of the difficulty of this came with the difficulties of being at music college or being a musician with that extra back of the mind comparing yourself to everybody else mm. the whole time I was going oh well my playing is a little bit shit right now and I'm struggling to practice but her recital is going to sound awesome because she's got this, that and the other going on and she's managing her time so well or like he's doing all this great repertoire or he's doing some of the same pieces as me and his is going to be so much better and like I'm just not being able to practice or I'm in too many rehearsals a week or, you know, I've not really organised my schedule properly and now I'm a mess and they're all going to be fine. Um, Definitely didn't make it any easier. Um, 
essentially during that time I was just trying to pretend that there was nothing going on so I was stressed the whole time and I think I managed to sort of outwardly project just fourth year college stress rather than I Mm. genuinely think I'm losing my mind um and it was so scary as well because all of these things I was thinking and feeling were just so overwhelming Mm. and the voices that shouted the loudest were the intrusive thoughts coming through um the things that weren't true and didn't need my time but they were the things that were that were sticking with me um because that's how ocd works <laughs> those thoughts come back and they come back again they come back again and unless you know how to manage it they're going to keep coming back and, and yeah. getting worse and it it was bad it's like i said earlier the only time i felt okay and safe was when i was asleep because it was the only time that my brain wasn't able to panic and that's it's quite a scary thing to hear myself say out loud that you know for for seven hours a day i felt like a normal human being but because i was unconscious like that's bizarre and frightening as as a sentence but it it was my reality for however long a year two years it is absolutely it's absolutely the case a lot of the time with this disorder that is why it's one of the top 10 most debilitating conditions you know it's it is it's 24 hours a day and I don't know if you've ever done any of those generalized anxiety questionnaires or something Mm -hmm. that doctor give you and it's like how often in the last 10 no two weeks have you felt these symptoms and it's like a little bit, most days, almost every day. And I'm like, every hour of every day. Yeah. Where's the box for every hour of every day of every minute of every Constantly. second? Like, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like anxiety times a trillion on total, you know, a different wavelength, which does sound dramatic. But I think what you're saying is exactly how that feels. It's like the only piece you get is when you're asleep, if you can get to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was lucky that because my brain was working so hard on these thoughts all day every day I was exhausted enough to sleep every night that and I'm I'm certain that is the only reason why was because my brain was just wiped out tired and did you manage to kind of I mean how does does depression come into this view I mean it sounds like it would do if every second of every day is hopelessly terrifyingly bad yeah, so when I eventually got to my good therapy, um, the sort of way that he described, sort of, I guess, their comorbidities was OCD that was manifesting high anxiety rather mm. than depression. But in as much as I don't want to take that label of depression because that wasn't a diagnosis mm. that was given to me or that I identified with, however, it did become isolating and miserable and difficult you know there were my I didn't tell my friends Mm. I literally my parents knew and that was it at the time we didn't tell my brother I didn't tell any of my friends whether they were at college with me or not um and I you know it's fair to say that you know I definitely ended up pushing people away from me I lost friends during that time um my housemate at the time chose to move out because of my the way I was behaving, I wasn't being a very nice person. I wasn't being a very good friend, but I wasn't, I was also not being those things to myself. Um, mm. And so, you know, it just, it was, it was a, it was a cloudy time. It wasn't good. Mm. That's, it's a lot to have held all that just by yourself and mm. with your parents. And yeah, I, I can't, I mean, 
I just, uh, I really want people to understand how much, I'm sure they do, but I just want people to understand like how much that loneliness can kill you inside, like, mm-hmm. you know? And I am, I said this to you before we started recording, but I am just so grateful. I feel really blessed that you are, you know, it is courageous to to speak in this way and to make someone, I'm sure you're making people feel a lot less alone by speaking about college, especially like with the honesty that you have, because college can be really, 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 really tough. And I really understand that. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I really want to talk now a bit about your recovery and about mm-hmm. your therapy. Um, you know, I don't know if you want to mention the bad therapy uh, <laughs> or if you just want to start from the good therapy. No, I think it's important that I do talk about the the bad therapy. Um, so when I finished college, um, that was 2013. I stayed in London for another year and then I moved back with my parents for a little while Um as I mentioned, my housemate and I fell out mainly because of my OCD behaviours and that's fine. Um, we don't see eye to eye anymore. I don't think we would recover that friendship. I think it was probably for the best. But I, I acknowledge that I was probably the, the base cause of that. And so when she decided to move out, I couldn't afford to stay where I was living in London. So I moved back to, to Cam's for a bit and we we decided that we'd give therapy a go um i wasn't really sold on it because i again like i said at the beginning it felt like admitting defeat Mm. um agreeing to go to therapy or put a label on it felt like oh well shit this is it this is me labeled up for life everyone's gonna you know see me coming with this bright old shiny banner across my forehead i don't know who i thought was putting that there but you know it felt very like oh this is a really big step especially back in 2013 is it 14 Mm -hmm. and to think how far we've come since then oh yeah you know like sorry to interrupt but I just I'm just thinking shit yeah let's go to therapy back then it's it's not like you had everything online being like yeah therapy woo there you know it wasn't like that kind of Mm -hmm. vibe at all so that isn't that crazy that that was only seven or eight years ago though Mm -hmm. we're not talking decades Mm -hmm. um anyway I could go on about PTSD mm. from the wars. Anyway, that's that's not a, that's a whole other soapbox for me to get off. Um, so I we found uh, a person that was fairly local and she seemed okay. Um, and and I had a few sessions with her and I thought mm, I'm not sure we're really gelling here. She was a, a grief specialist and for all I know she might be a fantastic grief counsellor. Mm. However, she was not at all experienced in OCD. Yeah at all um and she spent a long time trying to convince me that my issues stemmed from my uncle passing away when i was 21 Mm -hmm. at this time i was only 23 so i was like well it's been going on longer than that so that's definitely not it because he was very much alive during the earlier parts of Mm. of me suffering so okay fair enough um and she would do sort of certain things like she'd set me something to try as homework which i am all for anybody that doesn't know therapy is a lot of work it's not just you turn up and talk for an hour a week you have a lot of stuff to work on in the meantime so she would set me these things and i was like okay i'll keep an open mind i'm a very cynical person up until therapy um i still am quite a cynical person with the exception of therapy so i was like <laughs> i'm gonna try and keep an open mind i'll do as she asks la 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 um, and i did 
And then I would go back the next week and she'd go off on a completely different track. Oh. We'd talk about the work that I'd done. We wouldn't review it. We wouldn't see if it was beneficial. That's it was just weird. like... And what I ended up feeling like was like a, a child who had worked really hard on their homework that wasn't going to get it marked and just seeing it be put in the bin. And I, that's a really like weird way of describing it, but it made me feel so small mm. and so like out of control. And I just thought, I'm paying you for this. Mm. I'm paying you to not give a shit. And I wasn't into that. And um, fundamentally what happened was, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this about me yet, but I'm really stubborn. And so I basically managed to squash it all back into this box in the back of my mind and sort of be like, I'm fine now. Look, I'm managing um, and sort of be reasonably convincing that I'd made some sort of improvement just mm. because I had chosen to make an improvement mm. um, and change my behavior for a short while. Spoiler alert, folks, that doesn't work. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it will come springing back out of that box later on. Um but in the end, I ended up lying to her as well about why I was stopping therapy. I didn't even feel like I could be honest and be like, this isn't working. You are not qualified for this. Please don't treat someone for OCD again. Um, in the end, I said, I'm getting too busy. I'm struggling to get here every week. Mm. That's not a good way to ever think, finish things with your therapist, whether or not you're getting on with them. Um, it should be an open conversation. That's the whole point you're there. It's up to them as well, to be fair. Yeah. Not not that I wouldn't have done the same thing. I totally would have done the same thing, to be mm. honest. But like, that's what people say is that you should always tell them if there's, if it's their kind of method or whatever that isn't yeah. fitting with you, because then that helps them to, if they're a good therapist, then in any capacity, they'll accept that, you know? Mm-hmm. And they can use it to to grow from there as as I was able to as well. You know, the fact that I'd had this, relationship with this therapist that I didn't like I knew next time if I was looking for it again I would know the qualities I didn't want in yeah. that person so in the end it did end up sort of in a very roundabout way being quite helpful mm. but she yeah she she was no good and I've I've never been back in contact with her in any capacity and she never tried to reach out again which maybe also ought to be quite telling um but that was, like I say, 2014. Um, and fast forward a couple of years, I've moved again. I've met my partner. I'm living with him in Oxfordshire. And I've got a, a slightly more high-pressure teaching job. My schedule's very busy. I start to notice that my thoughts and, and compulsions are getting a little worse, um, that I'm finding it hard to be motivated, that it's it, I'm struggling to do basic tasks again because these intrusions are getting in my way and I thought oh shit okay we've been here before now luckily it didn't kind of go as completely out of control because this time I could recognize it a little mm -hmm. better that it was becoming a problem and I said to my partner hey I think I need to get some help um and it was the first time that I had admitted it the first mm -hmm. time it was sort of a suggestion this time it was okay actually this is on me uh, the only person that's going to make this any better is me. Um, but I can't do it on my own. I don't have all the tools. And so I said, look, I, th I think I need to find a therapist. Um, will you help me look? You know, can we make sure that this time I'm happy that they know what they're talking about and that they understand my condition? And so I approached a company in Oxford, um, Oxford CBT, and they were great. They phoned me up the next day. So I emailed them late at night, about 10 o'clock. And they emailed me, for, uh, called me first thing the next day. And they said, 
can can you speak to me right now and luckily i had a small group of students i could leave in the classroom with a window in the door so i could jump out in the corridor Mm. and they had a quick consultation with me on the phone to make sure that they were going to recommend me the best consultant for my condition and find the best day and time that i could go without it causing me any extra stress already many bonus points okay ticking so many boxes i was like okay you're trying to make this convenient you're trying to make this work okay fine i I kind of trust you already and actually one of the the things that i found better about this place um and i don't know (laughs) if this is a particular personality trait but this time they assigned me a male therapist and i found it a lot easier to talk to him than i had found it to talk to my previous therapist and it's hard to say if it's because i knew that she was a bit of a quack or because she was a little bit too over sympathetic as i've mentioned i'm quite a sort of cynical Mm. glass very much empty type of a person so actually having a a less sympathetic slightly more factual um slightly dry of humor chap was much more much better suited for me Mm. i found it very easy to speak with him um and he was fantastic his name is dr pocock i think now he practices in london rather than in oxford um he booked me in for 10 sessions and again this sounds a bit like miracle cure 10 sessions and i've never been back Mm. not because everything is perfect but because he was like at the end of 10 sessions he said okay i feel like we've gotten as far as we're going to be able to go for now Mm. and you need to take this all away and see how you get on with it however the door is always open if you come back it's Mm. it's not a relapse it's not a failure it's you know building on this Mm. and you know I, i should acknowledge i did go in straight away for both times with private therapists i did pay quite a high cost for this um that's not the only way that people can go about looking for help or therapy it's just i was impatient and when i wanted help i wanted it now yeah and the only way to get it now here at the moment is to pay for it otherwise Mm -hmm. you end up on a list for a long time um unless perhaps you're an extreme case Mm -hmm. and i don't think i would have been quite considered that um so you know i was in a position of considerable privilege to be able to go straight Mm -hmm. to private therapy and get treated as quickly as i did and but also your priorities sorry when you're suffering as as you were your priorities to find help you know that's the only thing you want a lot of the time I mean it's as bad as it can be you know it's like I, I at least I felt it is a privilege for sure but it is sort of like I will pay anything I will sacrifice whatever to be able to pay for this because that's how desperately I need it you know so it's a privilege, kind of, but also you have to, your priorities change. You know, it's like, yeah. it's what I need right now more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> no, not at all. So I was just going to say, you know, the way that the therapy worked for me and the thing that I appreciated most about this particular doctor was that he was like, okay, we can go about this two ways. We can either go all the way back to the beginning, try and find the root cause of this if you want to but what i would think would be more beneficial and i'm glad that he gave me this option was to learn how to manage it now Mm. because you know part of the condition is going back and dwelling on yeah thoughts from here there and everywhere and things that you've done here there and every time yeah so i was really glad that he wasn't like you know the first thing we need to do is go back and find the root cause and 
he also was like, you know, you don't have to discuss with me in depth your thoughts and feelings, your intrusions, if you don't want to. Mm. Because he was like, what I'm going to teach you is how to manage them anyway. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter on the content. You know, you fill in the things in your pack as honestly as you want. I don't need to see those. Mm. Um, and so it, it didn't feel like the invasion of privacy that I was worried that it would. Yeah. Because, you know, even if you're going to therapy, you're still your own human being. They don't need to know every single thing you've ever done or any every single thing you've ever thought. Because that's fault for what I was there for. That's not what they were trying to treat or trying to help me with. What they were trying to help me with was how to live my best life day to day moving forward from there. Mm. Um, and that was what I really appreciated because I didn't need to go back and, and break down the last 22 years of my life. No. I wanted to know how better to live the next 60 years of my life. Yeah. Um, and so that was, you know, that, that's what I needed. And I was so lucky that I got exactly what I needed without feeling sort of broken down back to that's bare bones cool. and built up again as a person. Did, did your um, therapy involve like exposures at all? Yeah, just wondering, because that is, and this is the thing we talk about, the wrong therapy, you know, for OCD, the the recommended and most successful therapy is CBT with exposure response Mm -hmm. prevention, you know, but actually so many people end up in the wrong type of therapy. And it doesn't mean to say that you can't go to two types of therapy at two different times in your life. You know, so I've been to a CBT exposure therapist and then more recently because I've had issues in other areas of my life just generally with confidence or whatever I've gone to like a person-centered counseling person mm-hmm. but for OCD specifically I think a lot of people get into the wrong therapy with people as you say that don't understand the condition don't understand you you don't want to unpack your thoughts you don't want to do all this thought challenging and you know, all that that they make you do in some other therapies, like, why is this wrong? Why is this false? It's like, you don't, mm-hmm. that's reassurance. That's another compulsion, you know? Yeah, it's enabling as well. Yeah. It, it lets you reason with your OCD rather than manage it. Yeah. And that's just going to perpetuate it more. Mm-hmm. So that's just yeah. fantastic that you managed to find someone who like clearly was so knowledgeable and like gave you the the real kind of tools. But I really want to go on now just briefly to talk about, first of all, vulnerability, being a musician with a mental health problem and stuff, and then maybe a little bit about your podcast as well. Because maybe they tie in, I don't know. (laughs) Oh, I guess. Yeah, kind of. (laughs) Maybe. Let's see. So, you know, I'm uh, trying to champion a little bit at the moment, asking questions, why are we struggling with vulnerability when we see in the mainstream media, the pop industry, especially so many other industries and professions, people being more open, especially in the younger generation, you know, and it feels like there's this big pool of older professional musicians who haven't managed to be open or haven't felt comfortable being open about struggling and leaving us feeling like we're alone or we're the first or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering why maybe you think there's a problem with vulnerability in classical music, especially. And, you know, why I think it's important to be vulnerable now. So my sort of view on why it's taken so long for us to come around to, to being so open are all the reasons that you initially get taught at college um, 
are the best way to be a professional musician. Hmm. Right, let's use our proper English words, Melissa. Right, so... <laughs> When, when you get to college, people are like, right, the thing you have to do is you have to be reliable, you have to be key, mm. you have to be all of these things in order to get work. If you have a mental health condition or any other sort of uh, issue, physical health condition or, you know, home problems, whatever, you're probably not going to be reliable, you're not going to be keen or that's what you think other people are going to think of you. Mm. So all through my career anytime i've had difficulty or not i have still been reliable i have still turned up to work i've still been communicative um i've still done what i need to do to do my job but i was terrified that if i mentioned it to my colleagues my teachers whoever fixer um, if they knew that i had ocd that, that i had a mental health condition that they would think, oh, immediately she is not going to be reliable. She is not going to be organized. She is not going to communicate. And so I thought, well, if I'm open about it, it's probably going to cost me opportunity. And opportunity is what we're taught straight out of the gate is what we all need to succeed. Mm -hmm. And so I filled my diary up far too much. I, you know, turned up for everything when I was supposed to. I did all the right things. It wasn't really the right way of, of looking after myself. So mm -hmm. I think where we're so concerned about other people's opinions of us um that for me that was the reason i didn't i didn't want to mention it um nowadays though the reason i want to be vulnerable or i want to open up about it is because actually that probably would never have been the case um i have had a guest on my podcast rebecca carew who summed this up better than i can uh, rebecca lives with um uh, an autoimmune condition um and she she says okay if i'm the right person for your job hire me okay mm. i will work out the how how i will turn up yeah. and make that happen mm. but you only have to worry about booking me so same you know same for same for me you know if i'm having a bad day it doesn't mean i'm not going to turn up it means that i'll work out how i'm going to get there and how i'm going to get the job done yeah. if you're if i'm the person you want on your gig in your classroom on your podcast whatever yeah. I'll work out how to make that work. You don't need to worry about that on my behalf. Um, and I wish I'd yeah. known this sooner that, you know, I, I could just be that. like, right, I, it's up to me to figure out how I'm going to do it if you so want me true. to be there. Um, and so I, I hope that now by me discussing this openly, mm. that one, people are not going to feel quite so isolated or frightened to ask for help or worry about the knock-on effect it might have. It's, as I mentioned earlier, it's taken me 12 years to be brave enough to have these conversations, but I work full-time as a musician. I have a podcast that I run entirely by myself. It's not impacting what I do at all, and it shouldn't do either. That is discriminatory. If it does impact an opportunity that you have been given, that's not right in and of itself, and that's a whole other ball game, I'm sure, but we also have to remember as musicians to take time to look after ourselves we're yeah. always taught that a full diary is the best diary that you can have but if a full diary means that you're going to have a meltdown after four weeks of working then that's not the best diary that you can have if you even have half a day off here there and everywhere and that makes a difference to you then try to make it work that way if you can um so you know self-care being open learning how to manage a schedule 
all of those things make for a much better musician overall. Completely, completely. I just think it's so true what you said about like college and the way that they teach us to be reliable, blah, blah, blah. Because then you're right, when you do start to struggle, you think, oh my God, I can't, you know, if I if I don't turn up to that or because I can't, then I'm labelled as this type of person or mm-hmm. if I'm honest about it, I'm labelled as not reliable. I'm lab- And it's so, so true. And I think you're dead right that that has been what makes makes it so that the older generations haven't been able to blaze the path of you know vulnerability blaze the path of their true authentic selves and people suffer in silence as a result you know and this Mm -hmm. goes on longer and we think that only the extreme examples exist so it's like yes you might have heard about you know one violinist who who had a breakdown and was in was hospitalized for a year or whatever Mm -hmm. but the reality is that you know 60 percent of the orchestra will at some point in their life deal with you know, a common mental health problem. Yeah. But we don't hear about that. You know what I mean? We we might only hear about the absolute extreme sort of yeah. versions of, of mental health issues. Um, but wow. <laughs> you clearly <laughs> thought a lot about it. Like, it's amazing. It was, it was the difference between deciding to speak about it and not speak about it, though, to be honest. Mm. Um, it all stemmed from, and this will be a very, very quick interjection, somebody that I, another musician that I was friends with on social media, posted a picture basically making fun of OCD. And Ooh. I took a screenshot and I cropped her name out of it. So I just shared the content and I said, this boils my piss. And I mean <laughs> that because it really does rile me up. People making fun of it when mm. they have no idea. Anyway, mm. I reposted it and she slightly foolishly decided to own up to the fact that it was her post for a start um, and then said, you know, you shouldn't be resharing my stuff. This is really rude. And I said, actually, do you know what is really rude is making fun of something that ruined a large portion of my life. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to take this down. I don't see why I should. Yeah. And she got very defensive and actually really, very rude about it. And so I, I removed her from my friend and her husband, um, which was a brave move, by the way, because her husband is a trombone player and they live not actually that far from where I live now. Mm. So it was like I could be cutting off my nose to spite my face or I could just be making myself feel a whole lot better in the long run. And then I wrote a really long post about my experiences with Mm. OCD and how often it is trivialized and jocularized Mm. and just made fun of and that it's not okay. And the amount of people that responded to that and said, one, we had no idea you lived with this. Hurrah, therapy worked. Um, (laughs) But two said, actually, we didn't know enough about this. We didn't know, we've heard of it, but we we didn't know anything about it. Like you've brought light to something we weren't even considering. And I've Mm. spoken on other podcasts where people have said, you know, actually I'm guilty of sometimes describing myself as OCD and it's not an adjective. Um, And so... Yeah, it was that decision of, should I finally say something about this? I've wanted to for a long time, but I didn't think it was going to be a good thing. And I was like, sod it. Somebody's got to. I should do it. I should do it. It should be me. And so I sort of jumped off that cliff and I've now been speaking about it probably too much, i.e. as often as I can for the last sort of 18 months. That's incredible. No, I never stop talking about it. Please don't stop. (laughs) Honestly, because I know that one. I know the one of like, ah, but everyone wishes I could shut up. But yeah. I just don't think shutting up is is an option. Like, 
you know, especially when you have such a real, real story to tell, you know? Yeah. Um, so thank you for, for not shutting up. Amazing. <laughs> I ended up having a bit of an argument with Paloma Faith on Instagram for this exact same Ooh, reason. Just to... <laughs> good for you. <laughs> she was talking about her, an experience of going to the hospital during COVID and that she was wiping down all the door handles and like opening things with her <laughs> elbows. Fairly good COVID precautions. And then she made a post about it saying everyone must have thought I was so OCD. And I thought, hold on. Nope. No. No. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I wrote her a comment and I said, that's not an adjective. Please find another. You have such a large following and such a big presence yeah, in the world. So you dangerous. can't be saying stuff like that. It's not okay. And to her credit, we had a dialogue in her comment section and she left all the comments there for people to go and read. Um, and she did own her mistake. I mean, granted, she didn't change the caption. She probably should have done. Um, but, you know, like, if I hadn't said anything, there were yeah. tens of thousands of people reading that and thinking that's yeah. an okay way to describe something. And it's yeah. not. So I was like, right. Here I go, off on my high horse again. <laughs> <laughs> Just constantly banging down, take it down. All the celebrities, mind you, it comes up more than people would realise. Mm. You know, this. I think who was it? Kylie Jenner? No, one of the Jenners, Kardashians. One of them. God, did a similar go. thing with promoting a cleaning product, saying, "Oh, I'm so OCD. This is really great." Something like that. And <sighs> oh, anyway, it happens far too often yeah but in terms of just quickly <laughs> yeah sorry <laughs> my watch, I was like oh it's been, a, it's been nearly an hour now but just quickly if you could tell us like your yeah like your projects for the well what am I trying to say you could explain what you do on your podcast why you set up your podcast and what you have coming up sort of sure. your plans for the future with it yeah, so Boulder's Brass Podcast um, is a pandemic baby. Um, I was climbing the walls. Um, when when the pandemic started, oh my God, it's so long ago. I just looked at the date and was like, a year and a half ago, <laughs> Christ. <laughs> I can feel myself withering as I, as I say that. But um, a lot of my work sort of disappeared because um, I wasn't able to go into school and I was teaching a lot of first access stuff, which was one of the things couldn't be transferred online. So I found myself with like almost an extra 16 hours in my week. And I was like, hmm, this is a lot. <laughs> and I was living in a flat at the time. So there was only so much that one can practice the trombone before all the other residents in my block would have turned up at my door and, and I don't know, burned my flat down. Um, so I needed to find something to do. And I'd been toying for a long time um, about having either like some sort of blog based interview series or a YouTube channel or something. I was kind of interested in something to do with I'm very cautious of using the word journalism because it doesn't have good connotations. But, you know, something is something Positive to do journalism. with. <laughs> yeah. With, yeah. With, with Classical music journalism. And, yeah. And content critical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I'd been sort of toying with this idea for a while and then. I was thinking, oh, I wonder how other musicians are helping keep themselves busy. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I could ring them up and ask. I wonder if I could ring them up, ask them and record it and then put it out as <laughs> something new. And, and so it, I, I purposefully made it brass players only for several reasons. There are a few other um, music interview based podcasts out of the UK who are talking with a wider variety of musicians. And I was very keen to not tread on any toes and looking further afield in the US 
There are a couple of similar ones, um, but mostly they were talking to big name brass players, you know, people, household names. Um, and I thought, mm, okay, fine. I can see where I don't necessarily want to go because there are already things taking up those spaces. And then I thought, there's a question that a family member of mine always asks me when he sees me. He always asks me, what gigs have you got coming up? I mean, sometimes the answer is like, nothing. My diary is a bit empty. Thanks for that. Um, sometimes it just is like, oh, it's August. So there's kind of nothing going on right now. Um, and But I was like, you know, do you not want to hear about all the other things that I do? Because I don't just fart in metal tubes. And he never really seemed that bothered by, you know, any of my education work or uh, any of the other things that I was working on. And so I was like, mm, okay, well, what if I talked to all these past players that don't have a lot to do at the minute and found out about their jobs but I made sure to include anyone that calls themselves a professional brass player because there are so many of us doing so many different things that are all valid and interesting. So, you know, we have some people who are collegiate level trumpet professors in the US, but they also own a yoga studio. Mm. Or we've got people who live in the Netherlands and do contemporary music and sometimes play the, the trumpet in a swing hall. And sometimes we have people who you know, do a lot of event management and arts admin and sometimes play and teach. And I thought, actually, there are so many ways that you can have a job as a professional brass player that includes so many different things and we should hear about them all. And so the whole point of my show was to talk to anybody that calls themselves a professional brass player and hear their stories. And so we have had some people that, you know, are quite well known, um, people like Carol Jarvis. And then we have some people who are, you know, just finishing up their masters or their doctorates, but they're working as musicians anyway. Um, people who, like we say, don't spend all of their time playing, but are still professional brass players in their well own right. Well-rounded people. Oh my goodness. Yeah, wow. exactly. Have more strings to their bow. <laughs> Shit music fun. <laughs> But, you know, do other things like have multiple interests or their jobs are genuinely multifaceted um, and not always in the way that they think that they're going to be. So the idea was kind of just to to speak to as many different people from all around the world um, and hear their stories. Also, the name is so legendary. (laughs) Oh, my God. That must have been like a middle of the night moment where you were like, oh, yeah, girl. (laughs) The thing was, I was actually walking around the reservoir in in Banbury where I was living at the time. And I was like, is this genius or is it shit? (laughs) And then I was like, I can't think of anything better. So I'm going to go with it for now. And then it just stuck. I genuinely could never think of anything. I was going to say, the shit, that's an OCD (laughs) thought. That's nothing. (laughs) It's genius. Absolutely genius. And what you're doing just sounds so inclusive, so beautiful and like, Everybody, please go after you've listened to this. Go listen to Melissa's podcast, please. Yes, Boulder's Brass. <laughs> um, can you plug yourself on social medias, mediums? Yeah, Do you absolutely. have a website? Do you have a blog? So, I know at you the have moment, a website. I've been on your website. It's great. <laughs> so, I personally have got a website. My website is melissabrownbrass.co.uk. Um, we are hoping for the podcast to launch an Indiegogo campaign this week as we're speaking so probably by the time people hear it it will already be live um because we are trying to raise enough money to build ourselves a website and pay for our editing and producing costs and hopefully get some merchandise made um so 
keep an eye on our socials for that we're on facebook uh, you can literally just search up boulders brass podcast we're on instagram at boulders brass podcast um and there's yeah lots of different things going on over there we sometimes have takeovers so if you get fed up of seeing my face or hearing my voice you can hear from other people which is probably nicer that's so cool <laughs> that's a good idea <laughs> i want to do that <laughs> it's a fun thing to do uh and it's an easy way of uh doing an extra bit of social media promo without it being work for yourself <laughs> Oh my gosh noted all about the, the hacks <laughs> <laughs> melissa's also given me great hacks about recording um yep. I'm, I'm sure i'm gonna ask you more questions about editing as well <laughs>